Tucked away among the steep sandstone formations in Israel's Araba Valley sits Timna Park, and its best-known attraction is called Solomon's Pillars, these beautiful Nubian sandstone formations that have nothing to do with King Solomon. <laughs> but the best part of Timna Park is a full-scale replica of the Old Testament tabernacle that Moses and the children of Israel used as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We're going to see this tabernacle, and entering it is like entering a doorway to history and seeing a picture of your salvation. Southern Israel is one of the most beautiful national parks in the country. It's located just 18 miles north of Elat, Israel's southernmost city by the Red Sea. The park measures 35 square miles with mountains as high as 2300 feet surrounding the valley. The beauty of the park lies with its natural formations, the most famous of which are called Solomon's Pillars a misnomer, really, from an assumption that Solomon had dug for copper in the valley. As it turns out, the pillars are more associated with Egypt than with Solomon. beside the pillars takes us to an overlook of an area where in 1969 archaeologists discovered an Egyptian temple built in the 13th century BC probably by the Egyptians who mined for copper in the valley it was built for their pagan goddess Hathor and on the wall that faces the temple an inscription more than 3,300 years old can still be seen of Pharaoh Ramses III offering gifts to Hathor. In the temple area below, archaeologists found numerous Egyptian objects, such as jewelry, art, and seals, as well as various depictions of Hathor, Egypt's patron goddess of miners. Around the corner from Solomon's Pillars and the Egyptian temple stands a model of another worship space this one of the true God. A Christian organization has constructed a scale replica of the wilderness tabernacle, giving educational tours to groups. The dimensions of the tabernacle model faithfully reproduce the measurements of the original tabernacle given in Exodus chapters 35 through 40. It stands 75 feet wide by 150 feet long. But reading the description in the book of Exodus is greatly enhanced by experiencing the tabernacle itself and very near the same wilderness where the Hebrews wandered for 40 years. It's like walking into a scene right out of the Bible. The abundance of acacia wood in the wilderness provided the construction material for the tabernacle's poles and furniture. This plentiful hardwood would even have a place named after it Shittim. The wooden poles held fast the simple white fabric that formed the perimeter of the tabernacle and served as the first of a number of barriers between the people and the Lord. The barriers demonstrated that no one could come into the presence of a holy God alone because holiness cannot have fellowship with sin. The first object we face as we enter the tabernacle courtyard reminds us of the separation that sin causes. The large brazen bronze altar stands chest high, seven and a half feet square. 
This massive altar stands in the way as we enter and reminds us that the only way to God comes through the death of a sacrifice as a substitute for the death of the sinner. The altar was the place where the majority of sacrifices were offered by fire on a daily basis. Red paint on the horns of the altar reminds us of the blood of the sacrifices that died in the place of the worshipers. Just past the brazen altar stood the bronze laver, the washbowl, where priests would wash their hands and feet before passing through another barrier, the tent called the holy place. While anyone could enter the tabernacle courtyard with a sacrifice, entering the holy place was something only the priests could do. Inside, the menorah on the left would have offered the only light in the tent. Its lamps were never to go out. On the right, the table of showbread with its 12 loaves represented Israel's 12 tribes, which camped all around the tabernacle. A mannequin stands dressed in the ornate garb of the high priest, who in Moses' day was Aaron. At the back of the room stood the altar of incense, where coals from the brazen altar were brought for incense to burn before the presence of God. While the priests could enter the holy place, only the high priest could pass through the final barrier, the veil behind the altar of incense, and he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Behind the altar of incense, we draw back the veil and enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The only item in this small space was the Ark of the Covenant, where golden angels faced each other over what would have been a solid gold lid called the Mercy Seat. Here, the very presence of God would have dwelt. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the Mercy Seat to atone for sins, to cleanse the tabernacle, and to make a way for God to remain dwelling among a sinful people. It brought God's people back into fellowship with the Lord. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron the priest would wear humble clothing and offer on the brazen altar a bull for himself and for the priests. Then Aaron would cast lots to decide which one of two goats would be sacrificed and which one would live to serve as the scapegoat or the goat of removal. Aaron would take a fire pan of coals from the brazen altar and go inside the holy place with incense. Then he would enter the holy of holies and smoke from the incense would hide Aaron from the glory of God. He sprinkled the blood of the bull and the goat on and in front of the mercy seat. The words mercy seat come from a Hebrew word related to kippur, which means to make atonement. At various places in scripture, we're told what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Here we see replicas of Aaron's staff, a bowl of manna, and the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Aaron would then come out and lay his hands on the head of the live goat, the scapegoat, and confess over it all the sins of Israel, symbolically transferring the sins from the entire nation to one goat. Then the goat was carried away into the wilderness and released. When the Jerusalem temples were constructed, the scapegoat was led into the Judean wilderness just west of Hyrcana to a hill today called Mount Muntar. It stands 1,640 feet high, the tallest mountain in the Judean wilderness. The scapegoat ceremony was seen by all. It was a powerful visual that demonstrated the reality of sin and the need to remove it through a sacrifice that took our place. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the Jerusalem temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil that represented the separation of God from people was removed by Jesus' death. The author of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus' flesh represented the veil that separated the glory of God from sinful people. The tearing of the veil meant that all the rituals required in the wilderness tabernacle and later in the Jerusalem temples had been satisfied once and for all in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that mediator between us and a holy God. These rituals on Yom Kippur made the impossible possible. By one man cleansing the sanctuary, a holy God forgave the sins of an unholy people and would continue to dwell among them. The tabernacle illustrates what the New Testament confirms. There is but one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It is he, our great high priest, who also served as our sacrifice, offering his own blood and dying as a substitute in our place. The Apostle Paul writes, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I thought that video would be a nice introduction to Leviticus chapter 16. Well, thank you, Barbara. And uh, Leviticus 16 is what we'll look at. And that if you ever go to Israel, um, I hope that you'll take a journey down south. Most tours don't go down south, and that's because there's so much to see up north, it's a lot easier to get to. But if you do go down south, you get to see this tabernacle in Timna Park. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. In fact, Bob went with me just a couple of months ago. Bob, where are you? There you are, Bob. Stand up and let's just applaud Bob for going. <laughs> Pretty neat, though, wasn't it, to walk through that, that tabernacle. You, you get a sense of the scale of it, and it's, uh, it's not as big as, as you might imagine that it is. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you ever wonder if your flaws are as obvious to other people as theirs are to you? Because theirs are so obvious, aren't they? It's amazing. On Monday, I went to get an MRI of my shoulder. And I don't know when the last time you've had an MRI is, but you've got to really have peace with the world to go through that little tube because once they stick you in that thing, there's no getting out. And uh, it's loud as well. So anyway, but I had an MRI done of my shoulder and the doctor ordered it because I've been having pain with my shoulder. And then on Wednesday, I went in and the doctor gave me the results. He basically t tells me that I have a tendon that's torn in my shoulder, and I've got two options. One, I can have surgery. Two, I can live with pain for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I'm not a major fan of pain, <laughs> so I'll be having surgery here in the near future. But I guess there's a third option. I could have said, you know, Doc, I think you're wrong. I think uh, the MRI photos are wrong. Uh, what's really wrong is that uh, I need to eat more cookies. And uh, in fact, I live in a society that's messed up. In fact, doctor, I don't even like the boots that you're wearing. I think that's what's wrong with my shoulder. Well, this would be a ridiculous response, wouldn't it? It would be a ridiculous response. Um, we get MRIs. We go to doctors because they know what we don't. An MRI shows us what we can't see on the surface. 
I can look at my shoulder and it looks fine, but it doesn't feel fine. It takes looking below the surface with something that I don't have myself to get to the truth. And even if I saw it, I wouldn't know what I was looking at. So it takes a doctor who knows what the what an MRI photo is supposed to look like and it gives you the 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 results even if they're bad. Uh, to not follow their advice is foolish. So let me ask you that question again. Do you ever wonder if your flaws are as obvious to others as they are to you? It's kind of a scary thought because we tend to minimize our own thoughts, our own faults, I should say. Uh, We blame somebody else for the way that we are, or we'll deny that we've even got faults altogether. We'll blame it on somebody else, like their boots or something. And in the same way spiritually, just like we have blind spots physically that require x-rays and MRIs and doctors, so spiritually, we can look at ourselves and think, we're great. But the reality is, God is the great physician. God, God's Word, is the MRI. It is that that thing, like the book of James says, that's like a mirror. We look at it, and it shows us it's a window to our soul. And we are, we are nuts, the book of James says, like for a man to look at himself, himself in a mirror and then go away and forget what he looks like. Why would we come to God's Word, have it reflect the truth of who we are, and then to go away and ignore it? It would be as foolish as me not taking my doctor's advice with my, with my MRI and thinking that the solution is to eat more cookies. It's crazy, and yet that's what we do. There's no way that we can know everything we've done that's wrong. We've got the big ones in our mind that we wish we could forget. There's a million little ones that we have forgotten of sins that we've done. And then there are the sins that we aren't even aware that we've ever done. But God sees them all. Let's look together, if you don't already have it open, to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. This book that, again, on its surface seems so irrelevant, was very relevant for the Hebrews in the Old Testament as they walk through its guidelines in order to have a relationship with God, in order to keep their relationship with God healthy. And during the course of a year, They, like us, couldn't keep track of all their sins. There had to be something that dealt not just with the sins that you were aware of, that you could bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle, but also for those sins that you weren't aware of. There also had to be something to deal with the fact that the tabernacle became tainted by by living in the presence of people that were tainted. So you had to deal with the tabernacle being unclean over the course of the year, and you had to deal with people that didn't even know sins to confess. So the Day of Atonement took care of this. Leviticus 16, we'll read right from verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You may remember back in verse uh, chapter 10, we saw the death of Aaron's sons. It's mentioned here in verse 1 just to kind of remind us. But remember, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, came into the presence of God with unauthorized fire, or strange fire, it's called. It's fire that God didn't light. God lit the, the, the fire in the brazen altar, and that's the fire you were supposed to bring inside to burn incense. Evidently, they hadn't done their job. They let the fire go out, so they had to light another fire, which was unauthorized or strange. They brought that fire into the presence of God, and God says, you don't do that, and God took their life. And so this is what you call a teachable moment for Aaron. And after his sons died by just willy-nilly coming into the presence of God, God tells Aaron, now you, Aaron, you don't just come any old way, any old time, any old how into my presence, or you too will die. Here's how you are to do it. 
And so Leviticus 16 is going to outline this whole process. I remember when uh, my family went to Washington, D.C., years back when our girls were small and precious, we went uh, to Washington, D.C., and it was actually pretty, pretty funny because uh, th- that wasn't our, my first time to Washington, D.C. My first time, well, actually I was a little kid and that doesn't matter, but th- the second time, I guess, is when I went as an adult with another colleague of mine, and we went there uh, for, uh, for Insight for Living to represent that ministry because at that time President Bush was going to talk to a bunch of uh, religious organizations sort of off the record. Anyway, but that doesn't matter. What matters is I went there, and uh, I didn't know that there was a subway in Washington. You know that there is a subway in Washington, D.C.? Okay, well, now you know. But we didn't know. We walked everywhere. It was miserable. So when we went the second time with my family, my wife clued me in on the fact that, hey, they've got a subway. Why don't we take it? So, boy, that made a difference. And when we went, we visited the White House, and visiting the White House, we had to send our information, you know, weeks and weeks ahead of time. We couldn't just walk into the White House and say, we're here, we'd like a tour. We had to send, you know, all kinds of information, you know, criminal records, you know, my third grade report card, everything had to go to, to make sure that we were okay to walk around the White House. And so once we got clearance, we walked around. But we were only allowed on the first floor. Couldn't go up to the second floor. So I thought about that, and walking around the White House is a lot like what it was like with the tabernacle. With the tabernacle, you, there were areas of separation. Just, you couldn't just go anywhere. You had to have, the people could go up to this point and no further. Priests could go in, but then the general priest could only go to this point and no, for, and no further. Only the high priest, only one man out of a nation of a couple of million could go into the Holy of Holies, and even then he could only go once a year. For the president, uh, the presidents in the White House, our limitation of access is to protect the president. But with the tabernacle, the limitation of the people's access is to protect the people. Totally different, totally different mindset. The word holy that's used here in uh, these first couple of verses is a word that means set apart. When we designate something as holy, we set it apart for special use. And nobody, not even the most pious person, the most holy person, would dare to enter the presence of a God of absolute holy perfection without a sacrifice. The punishment was death. And it's mentioned here in verse 2, the end of verse 2, that there is a mercy seat. Now, you saw in the video, you've also seen in the Indiana Jones movie, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting. I said Indiana Jones, and all of a sudden, all your heads popped up. (laughs) Has it come to that, Harry? (laughs) Maybe I should have shown that video instead. But the mercy seat is the solid gold slab. If you think about this lectern here as the Holy of Holies, and this top part here would be a piece of solid gold that would cover, if we were to pull it back like we saw in the video, inside is the, would be the Ten Commandments. And eventually Aaron's rod and the bowl of manna would be in there as well. But the thought is that you had the Ten Commandments there, and then you had this solid gold mercy seat on top of it, and then you had the the angels or the cherubim covering that mercy seat, and the glory of God would, would rest there between these angels. And so between the holiness of God and God's law underneath, you had this mercy seat that was in between. God's holiness, God's law that was broken, you had this mercy seat, and on this mercy seat you'd have blood. So when God would look at his broken law, as it were, he would see the sacrifice that was shed on on behalf of the people. Uh, The word here for mercy seat comes from the Hebrew word related to the word kippur. Kippur means atonement or to make atonement, which is why we get the name Yom Kippur, the day 
of atonement. All right, so let's press on here. Verse 3 tells us what Aaron is going to do now that he's all prepped to get inside this place. Verse 3, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So we don't read much more about this ram. Uh, The ram presumably was offered first, but then the focus is really on these other items. Normally, the high priest, as we saw, is normally dressed great. I mean, he really stands out. In fact, he sort of looks like a king. He's dressed so fancy. But on the Day of Atonement, all that comes off. He washes and he puts on this simple white garment, almost going from a king to that of a servant. Just a very plain, humble uh, outfit. And that was the purpose, to illustrate humility. And so this certain man on a certain day wearing certain clothes, bringing a certain sacrifice for a certain people and a certain purpose. Let's summarize, instead of reading all this, sort of summarize all the verses that follow. Aaron takes the bull for himself and for the priest, and then he casts lots for these two goats. One goat gets to die, one goat gets to live. We'll talk more about this goat or this scapegoat in a minute. He would then take a a fire pan of coals from the altar in the courtyard and some incense. He'd go inside the veil to the very presence of God. And the smoke from the incense would shield Aaron as he enters now into the, the very presence of God inside the Holy of Holies. And there is an urban legend, and I know you've heard it, of, of, that you tie a rope around the priest's ankle so that if he goes in there and does it wrong, you can drag him out. This is not true. This is not true. So just put the, quit telling people that. This is how urban legends get started. It's so excited that you just think this is really cool. Well, it's not in the Bible, and it's actually not even in our tradition. So, urban legend, another one bites the dust. But this, uh, he takes the blood of the bull, and he takes the blood of one of the goats, and he sprinkles it in front of the mercy seat. And then, of course, the ark is there as well, and, and the blood is there. When God looks at his broken law, he sees the blood. Now, look back at the text here for a second, verse 16, in particular of what these sacrifices did. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of, their, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. So, so far... The goal here is to just purify the tabernacle. Tabernacle, God has dwelt among his people for a year. Among a sinful people, this basically says, hey, we're good for another year. God will dwell among us. But the people's sins have not yet been dealt with. That's what we would use for the scapegoat. Now, we've got a cartoon here that from the far side that I found was absolutely telling. In fact, this is how I feel at most family reunions. It says, the world was going down the tubes. They needed a scapegoat. They found Wayne. <laughs> look, at, look at these signs. Destroy Wayne. Down with Wayne. Wayne must go. Wayne, you nerd. No more Wayne. <laughs> I like that cartoon. But a scapegoat, what is a scapegoat? We, we understand a scapegoat as someone who gets the blame for someone else's mistakes. It's actually a pretty good definition. And that's what happens here in the Bible as well. This is where we get the whole idea of scapegoat. The word scapegoat is actually a contraction. We use contractions all the time. Instead of saying will not, we say won't. Instead of do not, we say don't. Scapegoat is two words escape and goat. 
escape goat. It's the goat that escapes, or literally in Hebrew, it's the goat of removal. The text goes on to say that Aaron lays his hands on the head of the goat and confesses over it all the sins of Israel for the year. That is a long conversation, unless you just go into generalities. But imagine that, this symbolic transfer of all the sins of the nation to this live goat. And they don't kill the goat. Somebody is given the job of leading the goat out into the wilderness and letting it go. And it is a vivid picture. It's, all this, some of this stuff happens inside the tabernacle where the people, the general people, they don't see any of it. But the scapegoat, they saw it. They saw the goat that represented their sins for the whole year led away outside the camp, never to return. And it was a beautiful picture, not only of the fact that sin has to go away, but that God has provided a way for sin to go away. And you can see, and you can see it happening. Well, so far the instruction's been for the priest, what are the people to do other than watch the scapegoat leave? Look down at verse 29. Verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Look at that wonderful last sentence again. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. We won't look at chapter 23, but chapter 23 says that the people are to come with with expectation. There's this sense of expectation of what God will do. They were to fast on this day, and it's the only day of the whole year where fasting was required. Every other fast was voluntary. This is the only time that you had to do it. And, of course, you did no work. It was a solemn Sabbath. And even today in Israel, Yom Kippur is the holiest of all the um, Jewish feasts. It's the the day that they think that self-denial is the means by which your sins are forgiven because, of course, they have no tabernacle for any sacrifices or anything like that to occur. You may remember back in 1965 when Sandy Koufax, who was a Jew, World Series fell on uh, Yom Kippur and Koufax wouldn't play. He was so committed to uh, self-denial. And uh, you may also remember a little more recently in 1973 at the beginning of what was called the Yom Kippur War. Remember that with Israel? When Egypt and Syria attacked on Yom Kippur because they knew that most of the Jews would be worshiping or focusing on self-denial and would not be thinking about invasion. So it was kind of a a cheap shot. But here's a truth. I wouldn't necessarily call it a principle because it isn't timeless, but here is a truth that the text shows us that will lead us into a timeless truth here in just a minute. But it's simply this, that God provided forgiveness annually through the Day of Atonement. That's what this was for to provide forgiveness once a year. God provided forgiveness annually through the Day of Atonement. You know, all religions try to deal with this some way. I mean, you look at any religion, you name any religion, and they all try to deal with the sin problem in a different way. And even though it's all a different way, it's all the same way. That is, you mask your bad deeds with good deeds. You try to do more good deeds than you do bad deeds, and, and, and in the end, whatever system, whatever God, whatever heaven is in that religion, you'll be okay, we hope, because your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds. When I think about that, I think about, you know, that's sort of like sprinkling powdered sugar on a fresh bowl of cow dung. Get the picture. You've all been on a farm. You know what fresh cow dung looks like. Imagine just covering that with powdered sugar. Mm. Gross! 
even though it's full of powdered sugar. Good deeds don't remove bad deeds. They may cover them, but they don't remove them. This is the point of the chapter. Now, let's leave Leviticus and turn to the right New Testament, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If an accurate MRI shows us what we can't see, and if a good doctor tells us the truth about that MRI, we'd be crazy to ignore the truth. We went to the doctor to get the truth, even if it's bad news, because we can't deal with uh, what's going on if we don't know the truth, even if it's bad news. These Atonement Day rituals made what was impossible possible. That is, a sinful people could come into the presence of a holy God. How? By having that sin removed. You don't put powdered sugar on your sin. That doesn't work for God any more than a a plate of dung would work for us. You've got to remove it, take it out of the way. And this is exactly what happened in Leviticus. This is also what happens with us with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Look down at verse 19. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Apart from the law, meaning apart from Leviticus, apart from the elaborate ritual, we may have a right standing with God. And Paul tells us, here's why we need it, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 has a context, and the context is telling us there's nobody who can earn a righteousness before God. But we also are told in verse 22 that we can have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And notice he makes that comparison, and we're meant to see it. All have sinned, and it's available for all those who believe. Jesus died for anybody who will believe. Well, he died even for those who don't believe, but the righteousness comes to those who believe. And notice verse 24, there's no earning it. It's given as a gift, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see, even on our best days, even on our best days, all we could offer God, and I don't mean this in any irreverent way, and I hope that my cow dung illustration is not offensive to you, and I don't mean to make light of it, but it is a powerful visual of us. Even on our best days, the best we can offer God is a plate of dung covered with powdered sugar. We can't get rid of our sin by ourselves. We've done it. There's no going back. You can't change the past. You've done what you've done. I've done what I've done. And there's no going back. No amount of good deeds from here to eternity will ever change what we've done. And God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we've fallen short of the glory of God, we can't earn the glory of God. Now, that's the bad news MRI. That's the truth that we need to hear. But the good news is, hey, surgery is available. Surgery can take care of it. And only the doctor can do it. You can't do it to yourself. Only the doctor can do it. 
Only Jesus, the great physician, in his grace provides, and he's provided it by dying himself. And this is what our text goes on to say. Uh, Verse 25 says, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Let's pause right there for a second. A propitiation. If you've got the new international version, you might have the words atoning sacrifice, which tells us what propitiation is or means. But propitiation is a word that basically points back to the mercy seat. What happened at the mercy seat was propitiation, atoning sacrifice, the day of atonement. There was atonement that took place, obviously. And Jesus was our mercy seat. Jesus was our sacrifice put on the mercy seat that God was satisfied. That's what propitiation means, that God is satisfied. Jesus was our offering. He was our scapegoat. He was our substitute. I like the way Max Lucado says it. He writes, ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and, incredibly, sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. Only God could work it out where all these things occurred, where his justice is satisfied, where his love is demonstrated, and where we are forgiven. Only God can do that. And notice also in verse 25 that little word, publicly. Because remember in the Old Testament economy, how did all this happen? Privately. In fact, the high priest was the only one that saw it. He went into the Holy of Holies all by himself, and he did it in there, and no one saw it. It was private. But we're told here that God, whom God displayed publicly, he had Jesus on the cross for the world to see, that Jesus was our propitiation, and it wasn't done in private. It was public. Everyone got to see sort of like the scapegoat. It was a public, public act. So let's keep reading. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. A lot of theology crammed in those verses, but look at the last part there, that he would be just and the justifier. And In other words, how can a God who is just also be a God who is merciful? How is he going to balance that? He did it on the cross. He is just. Our sins were paid for. That's just. He is the justifier. We now have our sins forgiven by grace. Only God could do both of those. Plus, it says he passed over the sins previously committed. That doesn't mean that he just kind of winked and said, ah, you know, doesn't matter, go ahead and go ahead. Uh, passed over is the idea that he, he delayed the payment. In fact, Paul even says he passed over, verse 26, for the demonstration at the present time. So he, he allowed all the Old Testament sins to sort of stack up so that Jesus could pay them at the cross. It's the great old credit card illustration. You go to the mall, you buy an iPhone, you take the iPhone home, you use it. It's yours just as if you'd paid cash, but you haven't paid one red penny for it. You don't pay for it till the bill comes due on your credit card. When the bill comes due, then you pay for it. It's called being credited with Um, money, but from our perspective here, it's credited with righteousness. That's how the cross worked. He passed over in the the Old Testament. Okay, do we need to do some jumping jacks or something? Would that help? I'm just checking. Cue the Indiana Jones video. 
God provides complete forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus eternally in contrast to the Day of Atonement when it happened annually. Big difference between annual and eternal. Annual and eternal. Annual meant it wasn't solved once and for all. Eternal means it's done and the results are never ending. All right, one more place to look. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, to the right. Hebrews chapter 9. Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, what happened in the temple? The veil was ripped. How was it ripped? From top to bottom. Nobody can climb up there and rip it. In fact, we're told that, I think the Mishnah tells us, that the thickness of the veil was the thickness of a man's hand. You got a man's hand near you? Look at, look at a man's hand. That is a thick veil. And if you don't think you're a man, just hold it up and say, this is how thick it was. <laughs> Only God could do that. And it was a visual illustration that that barrier that separated people from God in the tabernacle of old is now gone. Jesus died on the cross. Now the barrier is removed. You can come into the very presence of God now because of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, look down at verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, meaning this world, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To say it simply, the first Good Friday was the last day of atonement. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all eternally. Uh, I know I'm giving a lot of dated illustrations, but that's because, well, I'm getting older. <laughs> Back in 1972, the Super Bowl number six. Well, that sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? Super Bowl six. Remember what, what the response was when the Dallas Cowboys running back Dwayne Thomas was asked, how does it feel to play in the ultimate game? Remember what he said? His, it was a great reply. He said, if this is the ultimate game, how come they're playing it again next year? <laughs> what a great response. Well, the Cowboys won that game. That was their first Super Bowl to win. And it was like almost the last Super Bowl to win, too. And it's, been a, it's been a while. Came so close this year. Oh, I can't tell you how disappointed I was, but anyway, we won't get into that. But next year is a new season, and, and Dwayne Thomas was exactly right. As in football, so it was when the Day of Atonement. You got to do it every year. I mean, you get your Super Bowl ring, you can't waltz into heaven with your Super Bowl ring, as it were. It has to be every year. But Jesus, once for all, did it. Uh, look at chapter 10. Chapter 10. Beautiful picture here of the shadow. I love this, this metaphor. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Even though annually there was forgiveness of sins, it really also served to remind them this isn't taking care of it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to keep doing it. Um, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Look at verse 10. 
By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's done. Never has to happen again. Lee Strobel, the pastor up in uh, Chicago, now writer, you probably have read some of his great books, said that he was doing a baptism service uh, for, uh, for their church, and they told people, just to kind of have an illustration of their sins being forgiven, those who were going to be baptized, he, he told them, um, take a piece of paper, write down some of the sins that you've done, fold it up, and come and pin it to the cross, and then, you know, you come and be baptized. Not that you had to do this to be saved, it was just this illustration that the cross takes away your sins. Well, here's what this one woman wrote. She actually wrote to Strobel and said this, quote, I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were that strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross, I penned the paper there, and I was directed to a pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes, and I thought for sure he was going to read this terrible secret I'd kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable, indescribable. I love reading this, but let me tell you, you don't have to have this experience to be forgiven. You don't have to have this emotional feeling. Just believe it. Forgiveness is not an emotion to claim. It is a promise to claim. It's not an emotion. It's, it's a promise. Repenting of sins is a change of mindset. It's not a change of, it's just action. And I think we kind of get the cart before the horse when we say, well, you've got to repent of your sins and then believe in Jesus. It's the same thing. To repent is to change the mind, the mindset from self to God. That is the act of believing. All right, we've got a few minutes before we say amen. So rather than just say amen, I'm going to ask, are there any questions about what we've looked at today or uh, about my shoulder? Anybody? Carol. How'd, how'd they get him out if he did die in the Holy Place? That's a great question. The system was set up for him to succeed. And so if he just simply followed the rules, it was never a problem. At least it's never recorded. So, good question. I have no idea how they do it otherwise. I guess the, they leave his corpse in there for a year, and the next high priest would come in there and say, Hey, Bob, how's, how's it going? Did, did you ever uh, uh, feel like you're, getting, you're about, about to be struck down if you, when you walked into the holy place? And... When you walked into that tabernacle place? I've been there many times, and so the, the news kind of worn off. But I do remember the first time. It was a little weird because, of course, all your life you're, you're told you never go into the holy of holies. I didn't even have a sacrifice with me or anything. So... But yeah, it does. It did feel a little weird. Good. Continue obeying uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you continue obeying Jesus Christ, then God will forgive you. Is that correct? Let me ask you: Have you continued to obey Jesus Christ? As much as possible. In other words, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's an impossible impossible demand that the Bible actually doesn't give us. It's the fact that we can't obey by ourselves and that we continue to fail. So I'm really glad you asked that because it is an unequivocal no. You don't have to trust and obey to be saved. You can't. I think John MacArthur said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. 
We can't do it. It's, it's simply by believing. Simply by believing. And that's it. Now, why do we obey? Not to earn salvation, but because we already have it. Our motivation is gratitude. It's not fear of trying to earn God's grace. Is that clear? Okay, good. Please get, definitely get that uh, straight in your head because you want to be trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Okay, what's the Zoom land question? This is from Sarah Crespo. Why did Solomon's temple change the veiled door to doors and the cherubim's placement from the top of the mercy seat to a standing position? (laughs) Sarah, you are incredibly astute. Solomon's temple upgraded just about everything, both in size and scale, but the function was identical. And I'm, think, I'm trying to think, in fact, I'm pretty positive we could find a place in 1st or 2nd Samuel, 2nd Samuel or 1st Kings, where someone's calling me. It's my wife. You want to talk to Kathy? Uh, either 2nd Samuel or 1st Kings, David communicates to Solomon that the plans for the temple were God's plans. So they were, they were what the Lord uh, had intended. So the changes were okay. The, but the doors, you know, not the veil, the doors would have still represented the barrier, and the cherubim were just huge. In fact, I think their wings went all the way to the wall. It was a massive, massive change. Okay, anybody else? Floyd. The next time we have communion, today will be a very good day to remember. Why so? Because it was paid once and for all, and all we need to do is give thanks for it. Amen. Amen. And that's what communion is for, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me. We do it to remember what Jesus has done. So, good. Anybody else? Okay. When what was the time frame for that tabernacle? <clears throat> when did it begin? What well, ta- year? Tabernacle began. Well, what year? Um, well, the Exodus was uh, 1446 BC, and they were there in Sinai for a year. So 1445, about that time, it was set up, and then it lasted all the way up until basically Solomon's temple. But there was a time when the tabernacle, I mean, the the Ark of the Covenant was actually taken away from the tabernacle. You remember that when the Philistines took it. So, but the tabernacle was still standing during all that time. So, is that what you're asking? Because I'm not sure else how to answer you. All right, Rich, you'll be the last one. Was the veil then that was at the time of Christ, was it in position in Solomon's temple or was it a solid wall with a door based on what you mentioned earlier? Apparently it was not a solid wall, but it was just a veil. Okay. Yeah, Solomon's temple and the temple at the time of Christ were different temples. So Solomon's temple was called the first temple. Uh, the one time of Christ is the second temple. So, and now Zerubbabel's temple and Herod's temple basically are the same. Herod just took Zerubbabel's temple and upgraded it. It's still called the second temple, even though it's it's a dif- different building. So, good, good question. Okay, well, let's. Uh, I know we talked about starting with a, a hymn, but let's end with a hymn that fits what we sang. In fact, we'll let this be our prayer. So Harry, come on up. In fact, you can help me sing it. Let's all sing together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, pray.
precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.